0: So, Father, in this morning hour, we're grateful that you have brought us together in worship and the hearing of your word and in prayer. And I pray that during this time together that you will open up this book of Philippians to us by the Spirit. We're, we're all hopeful, Lord, that you will breathe your Spirit on us and sustain us with your life-giving presence. And let the, the book of Philippians do that for us in some small measure uh, today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, I, I should say um, it's good to be with everyone today in the house of the Lord on the opening day of the Major League Baseball season. I know that's, we <laughs> are all, that's, okay, I shouldn't have said that probably. Um, we, we have taken a, a two-week break out of Philippians um, and we're we're just going to dive right back in. So I, I will put the car slightly in reverse, um, just to kind of get us back to where we are. And my goal is to finish chapter 1 today, because next week we'll do chapter 2, prim- and this can be your homework if you'd like, um, primarily the first 11 verses, maybe the first 13 verses of chapter 2, which I think probably range somewhere near the heart of the book of Philippians both pastorally and theologically and I would imagine it's a part of the book of Philippians that most of us who've been in church life for a while might might remember or have some familiarity with you know namely you know let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus he was in the form of God he took on a servant's role he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross Um, so that That's a famous, and I'll use this in scare quotes, but that's a famous hymn uh, that comes from the book of Philippians that many of us are familiar with. And we'll, we'll talk next week a little bit about that hymn. And I'll give you a little, a little foreshadowing, a little trailer on it. And we'll spend a good bit of time, Lord willing, thinking about what does it mean that in Philippians chapter two that God has handed over to Jesus the name. Uh, which is above every name. Uh, that's the, the, there's something, uh, I, I think, profound from a biblical theological perspective about a theology of God's name and what it means for God to name Himself, to identify Himself, and what the name actually refers to with the being of God. Um, because there's a phenomenon, and I don't want to chase this, I'm going to wet your time for next week. There's a phenomenon in the Bible That people and particular figures might know the particularity of God's name. Uh, They can identify the name itself, but are still being told, you need to know what my name is. So they'll know the name, and others be like saying something like, I know the name Charles. um, And I know that name, but I need to continue to know that name and what that name means. It's a bit of a conundrum in the Bible. Uh, an example of this: uh, the, the night before Jesus dies, uh, his last, the last words of his high priestly prayer are, are these: um, "I have revealed to them your name, and I'm about to reveal to them your name even more." Next chapter, we're in the passion. Um, so this is, you know, th- this is I, I find the whole name theology of the Bible to be rather uh, fascinating and important. And and next week's text will be right. At Grand Central Station on, on where, I mean, in some sense, I think Philippians chapter 2 is the kind of hub around which the spokes of the wheel of the whole name theology of the Bible tends to kind of operate. So next week, come, we'll, we'll do that together. But this week, I'd like to finish chapter 1. And if you remember, Paul's writing a letter to the Philippians from prison. And he's writing a letter that's laced from beginning to end with an enormous amount of affection and passion. Um, you can tell that there's a, there's a mutual affection between Paul and the people to whom he's writing. Why? Well, because they're not unwilling to identify themselves with Paul and his chains. They're not ashamed of Paul. They're not ashamed of the gospel that Paul has brought. And they're not ashamed that the founder of their community, the founder of their Christian community, is now in prison. Which I, Which one, I guess, can surmise... That there were other apostle-like figures around who were problematizing Paul and and Paul's identity as an apostle because he was in in prison. This is there was a lot of tensions in the early church, um, even between people. Who had good and sound theology. In other words, they were, they weren't sort of the bad guys on one side, the heretics all wearing, you know, whatever color, and the good guys on the other side. There, there were people that were confessional, orthodox, had a right view of the gospel, but they were still people. And there were factions. And the factions created a political dynamic. We're going to talk about that before the day's over. But those factions, um, we're often putting Paul and Paul's apostolic legacy um, on some sort of public <coughs> scrutiny. Um, is Paul really an apostle? And what we saw the last time that we were together is that Paul, I think, makes... well I, 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 It's stunning every time I think about it. He makes this rather pointed claim. There are people out there who are preaching Jesus and the gospel for reasons of selfish ambition. Now, I, I don't even know what that might look like. I guess we can guess. Um, But they're creating, I guess, a a sense of a following. Um, You know that from the Greco-Roman period, um, it was known that there would be particular intellectual figures that would arise and draw a school of thought around that person. Cicero, for example, had a school of rhetoricians that kind of followed him. You might remember St. Augustine in the 5th century would go and hear Ambrose, the bishop in Milan. Why? Because he was just an incredible order and he wanted to hear the power of this intellectual mind working itself out in persuasive speech. So I'm going to go and do that. I mean, there were figures that became galvanizing and magnetic forces that drew schools around them. And I think Paul uh, could sniff it a mile away and say, you know, I'm not sure that all the people that are out there doing Jesus' work are doing it from the purest of motives. Um, there's a lot, there can be a lot of self-satisfaction that comes from garnering a crowd, um, from drawing people uh, to you because, well, I don't know, for whatever reason, the charisma of your personality, the gifts of your speaking, or, or the, the sharpness of a mind, and it creates followers. And Paul saw this. And what happens is when you create a following, then you tend, and I think this often happens unwittingly, but it happens wittingly too, you, you can tend to kind of uh, cast aspersions against other groups that are out there. And I think Paul was experiencing this. He had, he had felt the bruise of this himself. And here the Apostle Paul says in prison, not knowing what his future would be. Not knowing, and we're going to see this in the verses we're about to look at, but not knowing if life or death was before him. And yet the people who were, I guess, on the ground, those who were, who were his, his, I don't know, ecclesial enemies, his churchly uh, um, antagonists. What does he say? Well, at the end of the day, I'm not a big fan. I don't know if I want to go hang out with these guys. Um, but the gospel is being preached, and I'm grateful for that. I rejoice in that. Um, I, I, I looked at a, a book. I can't remember. I think the fellow, the author was Wuthrow or I can't remember. Now, um, but it was a book on the, sort of the state of what it means to be to have a kind of intellectual identity. And this author makes a distinction between a scholar and a thinker. <laughs> um, and the way in which he makes the distinction is. A, a scholar or someone who's kind of um, in it for the academic game um, is very protective of their ideas. I've seen this before. In other words, um, you know, if you're, you you keep your own research close and your cards of research, and there's some wisdom to this, but close to your chest because you don't want anyone else um, to find out what it is that you're working on because they might just. What they might steal your ideas, and and by the way, we do know that that really does happen. There was a story recently about uh, somebody in a particular department, and all this who had shared his ideas publicly, and all of a sudden he sees it published in a a medical journal, or 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 I think it was a science journal. Like, uh, where'd you get that idea? You know, you heard that from. So this is a real live issue. But I guess in the realm of the humanities, you know, this is, this is an indication of somebody who's a kind of academic scholar protecting their ideas versus a thinker who cares more about the ideas and is happy for them to kind of get out any way they can get out. I mean, let's get these things out there so that people can know. So you can even have, you can either have a kind of circle the wagons approach to the intellectual life, or you can have an approach that says, well, I I want these things to get out there, and I'm happy to kind of share my ideas in an open forum. I think Paul is an open thinker in this way. He doesn't want to have the corner on the market. He doesn't want to sort of keep his own, I'm using an academic illustration here, but his research close to, to hand so that no one else can know what he's doing. He wants it to be open. Why? Because the subject matter is more important than the practitioner. I mean, that's crucial for Paul. What Paul's doing and what he's saying, the the, the message itself is, is, is way more important than the means by which the message is distributed. If I get to bring it to you, that's great. God has blessed me to be able to do that. But if someone else does it and they do it effectively, go at it. So I think Paul says, you know, whether they preach it from selfish ambition, whatever their motivations are, at the end of the day, I'm happy that the gospel is being preached. Then he moves into verse 19. I'd like for you to look at this if you have Bibles or phones. I'll just read it out loud. I call this section, verses 19 through 26, Paul's death and life vision. His death and life vision. This is what he says. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my... Now, all the English translations say deliverance. And that's fine. Um, But the word here is the same word that we would translate in other places as salvation. So I'm going to read it again. I'm going to put it this way. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. Um, Paul, I think, is living into the dynamic and the reality of what it means to be saved. Right? Can I use our sort of Christianese language? To be saved and to, in the future, be saved at that moment there. Salvation is a lived and dynamic reality that's rooted in a future hope. We, we wait. Why? Because we know... If, okay, I'm going to talk theology jargon here. We know that our justification, Romans chapter 5, is secured for us in a past time event. But we also know that our justification, that as is we've been made right before God because of the life and death of Jesus Christ, that that also has a future dynamic to it as well. There will be a future day where we are justified there as well. Right? And here Paul is saying, I have a future hope that my salvation is, will be worked out in the future. I know that Christ has died and raised and I'm in him, in him and I also have a hope that in the future that salvation will be actualized in that moment as well. That's future hope. Um, was it today that we heard the prayer? Or what was the text where? Um, pray, no, it, oh no it, was the, it was the anthem that we, we heard today, out of the prayer book. The first one that was in English. The second one was Auf Deutsch. It was a little that was interesting. Um, uh, but the, the, the English one, where it said, um, uh, And at the hour of my death, uh, let let me not let go of... I'm not doing... Um, this is the genelette gloss, all right? Um, yeah. What's the last line? Read it out loud. I'll um, put it in reverse a little bit more. Alright, okay. All right, okay. Um, thou most worthy judge eternal,
1: suffer us not at our last hour for
0: any pains of death to fall from okay. Yeah. So so this whole notion about suffer us not even in the last hour to let go of the promises that God has given to us. And I, I, I actually do... I'm sure you're all on board with this, but you know, I, our salvation, our future <laughs> destiny is a dynamic reality that's held in the hands of Jesus but that continues to give to us by his own generative grace the ability to confess and believe that the promises of God are true all the way to the end it's it's not it's not marked necessarily by again this is why I think Jesus loves to use sort of picky unish illustrations to describe faith, mustard seeds, small things. Because it's not sort of the measure of faith, it's the object of faith and a recognition that what does faith look like? Faith looks like holding on to the promises of God. There's one of my favorite etchings of John Calvin, and um, he, he looks as ornery and dyspeptic as ever. Um, and he was. I mean, the guy was, you know, he just, he was, he was, had a lot of sharp angles to the poor brother. Um, and I like him a lot. But here he is on his deathbed, sunken cheeks. He's got that sort of medieval nightcap on. He looks horrid. I mean, it looks like uh, Jacob Barley, you know, in uh, the, the Christmas carol. This, this is a bad scene. And here he is on his deathbed. And what's going on on Calvin's deathbed in this famous etching? He's got, All of the ministers from Geneva, the school there, um, the parishioners, theological friends, fellow ministers, all around him. And we know from accounts of Calvin's death what the conversation is in that room at the hour of his death. Do you know what they're doing to this great giant of the church? They're reminding him of the simple fact that the gospel is true. I mean, we're talking about a man whose legacy, theologically speaking, continues to exercise and generate first-rate thinking of itself. And yet this profound Himalaya of the church, that's what Karl Barth described John Calvin. He is the Himalayas. He's a mountain. There he is on his deathbed being reminded of the simple truth of the gospel. Um, it's, It's not an apocryphal story about the theologian Karl Barth. Someone asked him at the end of his life. This is in the Eberhard Bush biography on Bart. Someone asked Carl Bart at the end of his life. Another Himalaya, I think. Um, what do you uh, what, 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 tell us about your theology? Here he is in his in his 80s, and he said, "Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so." Right. I mean, there's something about when you're at the last hour that the simplicity of the gospel, um, for all the profound thought that it can generate. But it's the simplicity of the gospel that we need to be reminded of. And in that final hour, wanting to lay claim and hold on to those promises even then, Paul has assured confidence in his future salvation because of his confession of what Jesus has already done for him. So here he is in prison, and he's saying this, and it's going to get even more intense here. Because my eager eager expectation, here's Paul, my expectation, my hope, that I will not be ashamed, but that I'll be filled with courage. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I mean, that's, that's an interesting turn of phrase and not a way in which I think we normally think that God, Christ will be exalted and honored in my body, in, in the fullness and totality of my being. Um, that that I would that I would yield myself to him completely, soul and body. And what does he mean here? I think what he's what he's intimating is um, the, the 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 martyr's death that he might be facing here, which we know by the way he does not, but he in time will under Nero, and it's a and it's a very bad scene. Apparently, Paul has his head removed from his body, right? So he knows that his body. Um, could have the implica- the effects of, of suffering that's not just sort of internal, but actually in, in a martyr's end. And this is what he says, that Christ would be honored, whether I live or whether I die. And here's, one, here's, a, here's another famous bumper sticker line from Philippians. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I don't know about you, I've, I've known this Bible verse since I was a little boy. For me to live as Christ, and to die um, is gain. Um, but it's like, I guess, any simple statement that you become familiar with, as you reflect on it, I think, in time. Its profound nature begins to impress itself on you in deeper and richer ways. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? For if, I, if I live, I'm going to live for Christ. And if I die, it'll be gain because I will no longer be burdened by the weariness of this earthly existence. And but, but what will it look like? It's going to look like I'll be with Christ. So whether I live, it's, it's about Jesus. And whether I die, which frankly is a pretty good deal, That too is all about Jesus. I mean, do you get the sense here of the sum total of the apostles' vision of what it means to live in Christian existence? And that's why I'm saying, I think, as I age and get older, you know, the profundity of that statement, um, I guess it just doesn't escape me. And it also is convicting to me. Because, I I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I could say this, I guess, as a slogan. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, you know, um, you know, kind of like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. One, two, three, team break. Let's go play the game. Like whatever. Okay, if that's what that verse means, go 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 get them team. Um, you know, I mean, I think I could I could say it as a slogan, but the sum total of existence as being shaped by the service of Jesus and death being shaped by the enjoyment of Jesus, and that's. That's what it's all about. Um, that's a pretty big view, I think. I think that has the, the, the potential to shape the way in which we view all of our existence. Whether I live, it's going to be about Christ. And whether I die, it's going to be about Christ as well. And I, I, I think this is, you know, for all the events that go on in our lives... And for all of the realities that we deal with day in and day out of just keeping the wheels on the, on the family or our personal lives moving. right? Here Paul is giving us an existence that all of that is shaped by a service of Jesus in this world and a hope of enjoyment of Him in the next world. And look what he goes on to say. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I get to serve Jesus if I live in the flesh. But what I shall choose I cannot tell. Now that's one of those lines where you go, Paul, you didn't really mean that, did you? Because you know you don't have a choice. Uh you know, your 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 death has got a marked day. But I think what he's talking about is what is his own sort of his own internal yearning. Well what 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 do I really prefer? To stay in this world and to serve Jesus with fruitful labor, which means what? More people like you, Philippians. But more fellowship with you. The sweetness of, and the burdens, but also the sweetness of of a life lived in service of Jesus. And then he says in verse 23, I'm kind of hard-pressed between the two. And if you want to know the truth, I'd kind of rather depart and be with Christ. That's a lot better. But to remain in the flesh, that's better for you. That's more necessary for you. So I know what's going to happen. Here's Paul speaking a future word, I know that I'm going to remain. And my remaining is going to be for the fruit of your existence and your faith, Philippian believers who I love so much. Living with Christ or dying with Christ. The future hope. And Paul recognizes as he lives between the continuum of his existence, now and then, that all of it is shaped by a life of service and enjoyment of Jesus Christ. It's it's a... It's a life-and-death view that I think gives us a kind of lens for the the way in which we might view all of reality. Well, let's look at the last verses of chapter 1. Oh, yeah. This is how he concludes the first chapter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So, when you hear that, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What do you think it looks like to live a life that's worthy or in a manner that's in accord with the gospel of Jesus? Now, I will say this. And this might be a a good interpretive tool for for reading the Bible. I I would say more often than not, when the Bible raises questions like this, uh, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel, that the Bible doesn't tend to leave that question in the abstract so that we kind of go off with our own instincts to figure out What does it mean to lead a life worthy of the gospel? Well, it must mean this, that, and the other. And whether or not that's true or not, and I'm sure much of it is, Paul doesn't leave this question hanging in the air. Hey, by the way, I want all of you to live a life worthy of the gospel. That becomes a kind of empty platitude, I think, in a way. What Paul does is he now explicates and fills out what he thinks a life in a manner worthy of the gospel actually looks like. So he says, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel, And I'm going to tell you what that looks like. Well, here it goes. That I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by opponents, because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, what does Paul say here? What does a life worthy of the gospel look like? I think the answer to that is it looks like a community absent divisions. I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. But I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel insofar as it looks like a community that's absent divisions. Do you see this? Stand firm in the Spirit, with, and here's the operative word all the way through this part, with one mind. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. And then thirdly, not living and operating in fear. Then Here Paul is saying to beware of divisions that so quickly creep into the life of the community of faith To render the community asunder, and can you tell? Can you sniff it here? You've already Paul's already modeled this for us in chapter one. But can you sniff why Paul is fearful or is challenging them to lead an existence absent division, not? I hope this isn't not to produce a Christian Coca-Cola commercial. I'd like to buy, you know, it's not. It's, it's, not, it's not a kind of kumbaya moment here that he's trying to create so that we all just know what it's like to sort of empty ourselves of our particularities, of our cultural differences, and come together in a way that's sort of a beautiful existence of humanity. Now, that maybe that's a, a knock-on effect, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is not kumbaya, uh, Coca-Cola moment, think the last scene of Mad Men, if you watch that series. This is not, this is not what we're talking about. Mm, no. What he's talking about here is what he's already modeled for us in the verses just before this. I want you to be of one mind. Why? So that you can strive together with a common goal outside of your own particular invested political interests or religious interests, namely the advance of the gospel. I want you to be of one mind for a reason, not just so that you can have happy harmony, although that's a lovely effect of it, but because you have a common goal on the gospel of Jesus Christ. A common goal. Standing firm in the Spirit, with one mind. And he's going to mock, tell us in Philippians chapter 2 next week how that one one mind can actually become operative in the life of the church. But he's, he's wary, and he's also weary of divisions in the life of the church. You know, I think people can often and you'll you'll find this i, I i've got we, i i know people like this um and it's okay it's not okay it's not um <laughs> but you know there's this sort of notion about wanting to get away from any form of institutionalized uh, christianity as if institutions say like the advent church or Covenant Presbyterian Church or Southside Baptist Church, as if the as as if institutions, by the very nature of the thing itself, is opposite to um, genuine Christianity. You know, so you have these sort of you know anti-institution, and what, what's often the, the the argument for this? Because we want to be just like the early church, and we want to go back to that kind of golden era of the early. Apostolic age, and I, I hear that, and I think, okay, the, the, I can see, I can see the the appeal of that, but you do read the New Testament, right? I mean, the, the, there's no golden age. I mean, it, it was messy from the beginning. People were at odds with one another. You know, Peter completely punted with Paul because he felt the political pressure of the other Jewish Christians who didn't want Peter acting like Paul. And then they had to go back to the Jerusalem council and get all of that adjudicated because of all the mess that was going on. And then you go to the church at Corinth. That's a happy place, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it was a mess. There's no such thing as a golden apostolic age. And here is Paul fully cognizant of that. There are dangers, there are dragons that lurk in ecclesial life. That aren't there simply because of the institutional dynamics per se of Christian existence, the organizational side of Christianity. It's because, given our own predilection, and think about what's going on in our world right now. And I'm, I'll be careful because I don't want to get—I don't want this to kind of draw attention away from the, the central issues. But think about the ways in which our world today are moving toward identity politics and identity religion. All right, I mean, have you seen this? Did you did you read this op-ed piece about what happened up at Princeton Seminary and Tim Keller? Right? No, you can't come. Why? It's it's this kind of a religious identity, this this identity politics that's going on. That's now. Um, I don't know if you if you read the Wall Street Journal, but there's a, there's a great section this weekend that's in an interview with Jonathan Haidt. H i a i d t. He's a sociologist from from uh, that I think teaches at, uh, in New York. Um, fascinating what's going on, on on campuses today. you heard about Middlebury College? I mean, how they actually, a riot came out because we got this not really sort of right-wing, you know, sort of Donald Trump person, but someone that came, came on campus they didn't like. It turned into a full-out riot. Um, I mean, if you think that universities today are the intellectual spaces for academic and intellectual exchange, think again, right? I, I read an op-ed piece um, from an English professor, I think at Stan, no, it was the president at Stanford. The president. He's like, I'm, I'm pretty much liberal in my political identity, but I'm scared of what's going on with the, my liberal undergrads. Not because of the, because there's an intolerance to the exchange of ideas. I mean, we, if left to ourselves, we turn into this. Us against them. And Christianity is not immune from that. Karl Barth called this hyphenated Christianity. Um, I'm a blank Christian. I'm a this Christian. And Karl Barth was right when he said, and when we emphasize hyphenated Christianity in time, what what comes before the hyphen is more important than what comes after it. And I think Paul is saying here, beware of divisions. Beware of when you're particular darling that you love so much, beware about these things um, or what shapes your particular identity. Beware because it might be obfuscating the gospel and a joint effort together as a single body toward the gospel. I think Paul is giving us a good word here for all of us to think about when we come together as a body, what does it mean to be unified? What does it mean to have one mind? What does it mean to ask for the Spirit of God to give us the strength to have a single goal in mind as a corporate body of Christ? And what is that single mind? The glory of Jesus Christ and the advancement of His Gospel. That's what we are passionate about. And we might disagree. We might even yell across the lines. I like good disagreements. I teach for a living. I've got colleagues that I think are wrong on things. I love going to lunch and telling them how wrong I think they are. All right? And they do the same. I I love it. But you know what? When it comes to a common mind for the Gospel and the advancement of His kingdom, all of a sudden, our particularities don't become quite as important. Because it's about the Gospel and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. So I I, I need more nuance in what I'm saying right now. Okay? I need more nuance um, because there's a lot that's attendant to this that I I realize it raises questions and maybe you might want to ask in some Q&A. But... I do think Paul is giving us some basic material here to work with. He prays that they would lead a life worthy of the gospel. And what does a gospel life look like? It looks like a community that's shaped by a common mind toward what? Toward the gospel of Jesus Christ and its, its advancement. All right, let me, let me stop. Um, what do I have? What time is it? Oh, sorry. Um, anybody want to ask one question? Anybody want to fire something out?
1: really powerful stuff but it is just saying that we just mustn't forget forget that we, the gospel we must in our daily lives I mean I know you've just said that but I mean on a personal level yep. with our children our I family, mean our grandchildren huh. when you read what's happening in London where there's more mosques and the, the churches are just empty and the Christianity is leaving it's no yeah. longer there <laughs> yeah. um, I mean this is scary stuff for our children and our grandchildren yes. and so that's why it's, I'm thankful that my children know the gospel not through me, through God. He drew them. I take credit for that. But it is—it is it's just serious. Yes. It is serious, and that and that we do need to remember that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins, <coughs> and we need to tell people. And I confess that I'm not good at that always, but—but yeah. I, but I
0: do
1: think its yes to be powerful. And thank you. We do forget in our own comfort. That the battle is serious. Yeah. And yeah. it always has been serious. I've always said yeah. that right from the beginning, as you said, the early church was messy, but the, re- the way it spread was by their love, and people recognized yeah. that and saw something in yeah. that. And so yeah.
0: that we need to be that, not yeah. in an abrasive way, but,
1: yeah. uh, but still be able to stand yeah. for the truth. That's yeah. It's a good word. Yeah. Thank you. Yes? I want to say, I, I take comfort in the fact that not talked about Ezekiel this morning who was preaching and writing and stayed of of uh, related Israel. And God was reaching out to me and saying, you hey, be return to Israel. And that's what happened. So you know regardless of the strength of our faith or what we do or don't do, we know how the story turns
0: out. Yeah, that's a good word. All right, y'all, thank you for those comments. Yeah. All right, blessings. You have homework. Philippians two, next week.